Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. My name's Sam, I work here in museums and libraries, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the climax of our Lister commemorative season um, with a wonderful talk by Sir Roddy McSween on Lord Lister as a pathologist. Now you'll hear a great deal about Lord Lister over the next um, 45 minutes or so, I'll just say a couple of words about Professor McSween. He was educated at Inverness in Glasgow, uh, where he later became Professor of Pathology and um, Consultant Pathologist to the Western Infirmary there, specialising in the pathology of the liver. He was President of the Royal College of Pathologists at the end of the last century. Actually, it makes it sound rather long ago, doesn't it? In the 90s. In the 90s, he was not only president of the Royal College of Pathologists, he was then chairman of the Academy of the Medical Royal Colleges and member of the GMC, amongst many other uh, roles and responsibilities. He's famous as a textbook author and as editor of the journal Histopathology. Um, it's appropriate, perhaps, that we have... Uh, someone from north of the border in our Lister series. Despite what our colleagues at King's College might tell us, I understand that Lord Lister did spend some time in Scotland. Yeah. Um, and it'll be on his work as a pathologist that we'll um, hear about this wonderful um, talk and some wonderful illustrations. Sir Roddy. Thank you very much, Sam. I think that's the first time I've been introduced and told that I'm going to give a wonderful lecture. <laughs> I hope I justify that billing. Uh, and in reference to my Scottish background, uh, it's entirely appropriate because Lister did his seminal work uh, in part in Edinburgh, but uh, he published his seminal work on suppuration abscesses and compa compound fractures when he was in Glasgow, as you will hear. Now, I think, first of all, we should try and put this in perspective. I know that many of you are lay members, not medical, but we ought to see whether Lister really qualifies to be a pathologist. My interest in this arose as a result of having access to Lister's microscope. Uh, he had worked in the Royal Infirmary, and they were transferring the microscope from the Royal Infirmary to the Hunterian Museum at Glasgow University. And I was asked to look at it. And then to my delight, there was a little packet of stained sections and slides in the microscope box. And I thought, my goodness, this is marvelous. We've got some Lister's original microscopic preparations. But of course, I was sadly out of date because Lister was working in the 1850s and the 1860s. And really, histopathology and stained material it didn't appear until the turn of the century. On the other hand, morbid anatomy, or the undertaking of post-mortems, was common from the Middle Ages, and people like Rokotansky in Vienna was able to report in a series of 30,000 autopsies. So Lister were, did undertake a autopsies when he was in the College of Surgeons here, and he qualifies there for certainly as being a, a morbid anatomist. Now, the other important component of pathology, of course, is the examination of tissues, of stained tissues. And this is where you become a histopathologist as well as a morbid anatomist. 
Now, the truth of the matter is that the staining techniques which we now use really evolved at the end of the 19th century, and dyes like hematoxylin and deosin were not introduced until the 1890s and the 1900s. The discovery of staining cells and tissues arose accidentally because anatomists were injecting gelatin, carrying dyes such as carbon into vessels to outline the blood vessels in various tissues. And they noted that carbon in particular leached out of the vessels and then stained some of the nuclei adjacent to the vessels. And out of that arose uh, uh, experiments looking at various uh, uh, stains which would stain the tissues and provide a, an illustrate, uh, a slide in which the details were outlined. But before that, there was an interest in examining cells. And this was done largely as a result of cells which were spun down from tissue or from fluids or the preparation of or touch preparations where you took a tissue and put it against a glass slide and then you examined that while it was mounted in water or in acetic acid which seemed to outline the details of the cells a lot better. Now Lister did not have access to, to these but he did use tissue preparations as you will see to examine some of the cellular details. And he was familiar with cellular pathology because Virchow, in 1860, had produced his book on cellular pathology, and Lister was familiar with that. And in fact, he wrote to Virchow and said that Virchow, that was, had swept away the false and barren theory of a structureless blastema and established that organs consist of cells which have derived from existing cells as progeny. Now that sounds a bit complicated, but essentially what he's saying is that all tissues comprised cells and that the cells which were present in any tissue had come from a progeny which had been there uh, since the organ was formed. So in summary, therefore, Lister was an accomplished morbid anatomist. And in addition, he had some familiarity with cytology but he was not a histopathologist. The other aspect of this which is important is that we're talking about the 1860s and 1870s when surgery was restricted to tissues which were outside the thorax and outside the abdomen. And therefore he dealt with the limbs, with the head and neck, with the thyroid, with the breasts, with the genitalia. And it was just the beginning of the stage where ovaries were being look, looked at, and ovaryotomy was being introduced. And this consisted of sticking needles into the ovaries, particularly cystic ovaries in females, and taking out material from the, that which were being looked at. But you really did not have access to the kind of tissue specimens which are normally now sent to the pathology department. So that was the limited area in which he was working. This is the Lister Room in the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. And here we see the Lister Room. Oh, sorry. Here we see a plaque for Lister. And here in the background is the table on which he operated when he was in the Royal Infirmary. So we, we have established proof that Lister was 
in effect a Glaswegian. <laughs> now, I think it's important now to sort of look at the chronology of Lister. Uh, he was born in 1827 in Essex, and we'll go over some of this later on. He came to the University of London in 1844, oh, sorry, in 1844, and he studied at the University College Hospital. He was a Quaker and nonconformist, and therefore he could not get into Oxford or Cambridge, nor could he get into the well-established London teaching hospitals. And instead he went to UCL, which was referred to as the Godless College, because they, did, they admitted nonconformists. He then became a house physician and house surgeon at University College Hospital, and he graduated in 1852 and simultaneously became a fellow of this college. He was later to serve on the council of this college, and in 18, uh, and at one time he became eligible to, to sit or as president, but he opted not to because he didn't approve very much of institutions such as this, which he thought were largely responsible for awarding degrees and really didn't, didn't undertake significant clinical work. He went to Edinburgh in 1853, and this was a as a result of the contacts which Professor Sharpie at University College Hospital had with Edinburgh, and in particular with Professor Syme, who was the professor of surgery at Edinburgh. And he went there initially for a six-month period, but in fact one of the uh, next tranche of uh, house surgeons failed to turn up or didn't take up his post, and Lister got a second six-month appointment. Fate was certainly playing a hand in things because the University College Hospital had also approached a Dr. Mackenzie, who was thought to, uh, who was expected to come back to University College Hospital and become a lecturer. He unfortunately, this Dr. Mackenzie, he unfortunately contracted cholera during the Crimean War, and he died. And there was a vacancy at the lecturer level, which Lister got. And this was in 1855. That was in Edinburgh, sorry. Then in, he came to Glasgow in 1860 and was there for nine years. And he was appointed initially as the Regius Professor of Surgery. And he did not get a clinical appointment until a year later because the Professor of Surgery or the clinical professors did not necessarily have immediate access to beds. It depended on the managers and the managers were extremely uh, powerful in determining who was the Regius Professor of Surgery. He had a bad time in Glasgow. When he applied for the chair in Glasgow, there were seven applicants, five of whom came from Glasgow, and two of which came first of Glasgow, one being Lister himself. And he was appointed, and the local press took this up and said they couldn't believe that Glasgow had to go to Edinburgh to get the Regius Professor of Surgery. In addition, uh, the managers did not take kindly to Lister. He made very considerable demands on bed facilities and access to the clinical material, which they 
they were reluctant to give him. He had important associates in Glasgow, in particular William Thompson, who was the professor of natural philosophy and who was to, who was to become Lord Kelvin. And it's interesting that they both became presidents of the Royal Society and Lister succeeded Kelvin as president of the Royal Society in 1895. It was in Glasgow, as I said, that it was from Glasgow that he reported the important paper on compound fractures, abscesses, and suppuration. The papers were, there are a series of papers appeared in the Lancet, and they detailed the success which he achieved as a result of introducing antisepsis, oblique aseptic conditions, when the, when the uh, surgery was being carried out. And this was revolutionary. And people thought, aha, this is remarkable that we are able to now operate with some kind of aseptic precautions as far as the wounds were concerned. And this is what established his fame, of course. He then returned to, uh, to Edinburgh uh, in 1869, 1877, and then sought a post in London. He was unhappy in the Scottish scene and had applied for a post in London and applied for another post uh, at one of the London hospitals, and he was trying to get out of Scotland. In particular, he was anxious to get out of Glasgow, in which he was far from happy. He then came back to London for the period 1877 to 1900. He was the professor of clinical surgery at King's, and he, he retired in, 19, in 2003, and then he died in 1912 at Walmer in Kent. He had married Agnes Syme, Syme's daughter, and this, of course, acted as a further attraction for him in Edinburgh. She died in 1893 in Ravello in Italy, and she was buried in West Hampstead Cemetery. When Lister died, there was a proposal that he be buried in Westminster Abbey, but he declined this, and he wanted instead to rest beside his wife Agnes in Hampstead. And this is the grave stones. Not very well looked after. I went out there to see it and I thought, hmm, maybe the London College should do something about maintaining the appropriateness of such an important... Uh, in, uh. Now, if we look at Listers himself, he was born in 1827 in Kent. His grandfather had been a wine merchant who had come from London to Glasgow and established a very prosperous wine business. His father was also involved in the wine trade, but he was quite an accomplished scientist. And in particular, he was interested in microscopy and he made major contributions to the development of the achromatic lens and achromatic objectives, as a result of which he was a fellow of, made a fellow of the Royal Society in his own right in 1832. He and the young Joseph Lister were very close, and they maintained uh, exchanges of letters between the two of them uh, up till his father died in 1880. This is the house, sorry, this is the house in Essex where Lister was born, and he had clearly had a very comfortable existence as a member of the house. His father was also a distinguished linguist, 
and his father was also a very good painter. And all these things were uh, 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 Joseph took an interest in. His father was also a distinguished or a watercolorist, and this is a page from Lister's diary as a young man, in which he is, sorry, showing a picture of one of these starlings, and then there's a detailed history of the sort of lineage of these various species of birds. And you can see the delight, delightful and detailed a carbon a, a drawing of this starling. There was one other instrument which he used, namely the camera lucida. And I don't understand optics. But essentially, the painter here is looking with one, with half an eye on the paper uh, in which the drawing is taking place, and at the same time looking at this lady. And he's superimposing aspects of the lady's features onto the drawing in front of him. And it was possible to do the same with histological materials. This, these are the optics of it. We needn't go into them. Now, during his time as a house surgeon in University College Hospital, Lister undertook cytological, cytological examinations. He looked at touch preparations, and he then looked at tissue preparations. And this is a section of scalp, which was wrapped up in a piece of paper, then wet, wet, and then he cuts the very thin sections. And out of that came a cross-section of the scalp. And you can see here the surface. You can see here the surface. You can see the hair follicles. And in addition, you can see the sebaceous glands. And he did studies on the iris and various other smooth muscles, did Lister, and these were published in the Journal of the Microscopical Society. So he's already establishing himself as not only a morbid anatomist, but a cytologist. Now let us look at the materials on which this lecture is based. And all this material which I'm going to illustrate is in this college, because Lister left all his memorabilia to the college, with the exception of the three caskets which he got as a freeman of Glasgow, Edinburgh, and London. And these are lodged in the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. But all this other material is in the archives of this college, and I was given permission to work my way through them and illustrate these magnificent preparations which Lister prepared. Now, if you were all medicals, I'd be asking for a spot diagnosis, but I'll not do that. This is psoriasis. Here is Lister's signature on it, down here. Here we are. And here we see a beautiful drawing of very bad psoriasis, in which you can see the hyperkeratotic areas, and then in between them there are these hemorrhagic congested areas which are inflamed. And this is a magnificent watercolour of a very common skin condition. Here is another one. This is ichthyosis, which refers to a skin, a fish-like condition of the skin, in which you can see these hyperkeratotic areas interspersed with non-involved areas. And this, again, 
was a dermatological diagnosis. The dermatologist did not know what caused it, and they had very complicated names for this which needn't concern you. Scurvy. This is from the forearm of a young man of 28, and you can see the scorbutic lesion here with areas of hemorrhage. And then, in addition, a very characteristic feature that there is hyperkeratosis, or the keratin layer round the hair follicles are thickened, and you can see this hyperkeratotic lesion round the skin. And scurvy at that time was not uncommon. Here is a melanoma which was restricted from the upper arm of a man of 45. Here is the lesion. Here is the lesion. Here you can see the black pigmented area above the skin, and then the bulk of the lesion is subcutaneous. Here is a cross section of it. This is exactly what we do nowadays if we've got a specimen like that coming to the laboratory. And you can see that the, the lesion is lobulated, and he comments on that. And he also notice, notices that there is variation in the pigmentation of the skin. Some of the lobules are very darkly stained, others are a lot paler. And here is an example of a cell from the darker staining areas in which you see the melanin pigment dispersed throughout the cell. And in addition, in most of these, there are illustrations of the cellula of the cells within the lesion. And here they are here, multinucleate and with prominent nucleoli. And he comments in particular, and this is, I think is interesting, on the depth of this lesion. And we now know that the depth of melanomas is very important in determining the ultimate prognosis. And I don't know whether he was aware of that, but he certainly observed the depth of this lesion below the skin. Breasts. Mastectomy was a routine procedure because the surgeon could do that without an anaesthetic. And this is a resection of a mastectomy specimen here. In a woman of 45, the lesion had been present for some time. And you can see here is the tumour. And there are, he comments on there being two patterns to it. There is the pattern here where it's pale and white and is very firm. And that must have been due to it being a lot of fibrous tissue in it and being what we refer to as a scirrhous carcinoma of the breast. In contrast, there was another area below it here which is quite hemorrhagic and was quite soft. And he comments on this as being encephaloid. Here is another picture of the specimen here. And you can see the detailed clinical and histological history which accompanies these. And this is written, as you can see here. Not easy to read, but possible. And again, there are examples of cells from various parts of the tumour, and these are shown here. And again, he comment, comments on the, various, the varying pleomorphism, or the variation in size, and then the vari variation in the appearance of these individual cells. So he was being very observant in looking at the cytological details and which would, we would still do. Then this lesion from a 23-year-old girl, a Scot, who had come down to, uh, who, whom Syme operated on, and this is the clinical picture. 
And this is beautiful. Here we see this lesion here at the lateral end of the, of the um, scapula. No, not the scapula. The, sorry? Yes, the clavicle. Here is the lesion here. And he describes in detail the appearances of the skin. And in addition, he was quite happy that this lesion did not extend into the joint. And that was important. It, it did not go into the uh, shoulder joint. And Syme was able to resect this quite easily with clearance on the medial side and, in addition, clearance from the uh, sh shoulder joint. Here is the tumour in cross-section, and this, I think, is an aneurysmal bone cyst. You needn't concern yourself with the details of this. Here is the medial end of the clavicle, and here is this well-circumscribed tumour, which is cystic in appearance, which has got hemorrhagic areas in it, and in addition, Lister observes that the periosteum is preserved round this tumour, although there were spickles of bone present uh, in the surface area. Here's another view of it. And again, we see this clinical pathological correlation between the tumor uh, and what he's not noted about it. Here is the tumor, which you've already seen. And then there are various cell types, which he comments on from within the cysts. Cells which were multinucleate and cells which were rather fibrous. Here are some of the, the, the elongated connective tissue cells. And again, there is beautiful detail in terms of the cytology. And here is a multinucleate cell present within it. And he comments on it. And he also observes that there are nuclei in many of these cells. And you can see this quite readily. The tumour was removed, and there is no follow-up. She went home well about five or six weeks, or five or six days later, but there is no comment as to what subsequently happened. Tumour of the tongue. Here we see the tip of the tongue here. And this lobulated, multi-lobulated tumour is present on the lateral aspect of the tongue, and here we see it in high power. And he describes in detail the multilobulated appearance of this tumour, the fact that there are some areas of breakdown, and again, he looks at some of the cells which are present here, and these are shown uh, from camera lucida preparations accompanying the microscopic specimen. Soft tissue tumours, of course, would also be resected, and here we see a soft tissue tumour from the thigh of a 40-year-old man. And this tumour had been growing for approximately three to four years. And it was easily removed. Here is the skin of it here. And here we see a tumour which is showing a variegated appearance. Some areas are hemorrhagic. Other areas are fatty. And then there, is, there, is it, there are intervening areas which are quite hemorrhagic. And again, he describes this in great detail. Here's a high-power view of it. Not a, nice, not a nice specimen, but on the other hand, beautiful picture. 
And here is another tumour. Connective tissue tumours at that stage were really not very well defined, and they were, they were uh, uh, categorised on the basis of their appearance. And this one was categorised because of distinctly colloid appearance. And again, there's the clinical history, and again, examples of the cells which are present within this tumour. Now, some of the descriptions were very lengthy, pages of text which he wrote, or may have in part been written by Agnes. She acted as a kind of stenographer for him. And these are detailed descriptions, both of the tumour and of the cytology. You can read them, but it's hard work. A tumour of the femur in a young person and this is an osteosarcoma. Sorry. This is an osteosarcoma of the femur in a young person. Here is the head of the femur, here. And then there's this tumour, which is showing a distinctly variegated appearance. He doesn't tell us what the lesion was, but I think any pathologist worth his salt would immediately say this is an osteosarcoma from a young person. Then this is a hydrocele, which had been removed by Syme, and he describes, Lister describes, this bit of it, which was intra-abdominal, this bit, which was coming through the inguinal canal, and here is the site uh, at which the testes were lying. Beautifully illustrated. And then there's a, he, he marks out certain areas in this hydrocele and details uh, what they are. a lesion of the distal end of the spinal cord. There is no history with this one, but you can see here the, the vertebral column with the vertebra, the spinal cord, and then there is a destructive lesion affecting two vertebra here. And the tissue has been destroyed, and one presumes that this is probably tuberculosis. Then there are some black and white illustrations. And here we see a gunshot wound with a point of entry here and the point of exit here. Then there's a cystic lesion of the hand, almost certainly some kind of hygroma. And again, see the beautiful drawing. And then I think this is the most beautiful of all. A woman who's got a lump in her neck. It's not central, therefore it's unlikely to be thyroid. And this is probably, again, some kind of hygroma. But notice the detail, not only as far as the tumour is concerned, but as far as the clinical picture is concerned. This quiet woman looking distant to the distance, and then beautiful drawing of her hair, and then a beautiful drawing of this crenellated cap, which is on her head. These are better than any clinical descriptions one could give with a case like this. Then finally, cytological aspects. He examined, as I told you, various tissue preparations and produced pictures of them. This is in 1874, but you can see here 
prickle cell layer. From the prickle cell layer of the skin, you can see the prickles here. And then in addition, it's this cell has got three nuclei. Another preparation of a, of a hair follicle. Here again is the malpighian layer around the side, and here is the hair shaft. Again, marvellous detail. And again, the same as he did with the macroscopic or the large specimens, he did the same with some cellular materials. And here he illustrates the pleomorphic appearance of different cells, and he describes a binucleate cell here, another one here, multinucleate cells here with prominent nuclei, and this is all described in detail here. A marvellously observant cytopathologist. Here are other ones, again from the prickle cell layer, because these were easy to obtain from, say, the, the mouth or scrapings from the skin, and he examines these and shows the details of them. And then this, I think, is the prize. A marvellous illustration of a mitotic figure. And you see the cell here undergoing mitosis. Here is a spindle. Here is the fragmentation of the nuclei prior to the cell dividing. And in another hour, if you'd left it, you would have two cells from this one. And again, he details the appearance of the cytoplasm and comments on the appearances of the nuclei. Now, I hope I've convinced you that Lister was a competent pathologist. And he probably had a good conceit of himself as well and justified, justifies himself being a pathologist. This is a student comment from some of the students in Glasgow that he taught us more pathology than surgery. His lectures ran for two hours with about half an hour or three quarters of an hour for discussion. And in this... He clearly taught him a lot of pathology. Then this is an, an introductory lecture to new students in Edinburgh. You will find the pathology of surgery of peculiar attraction from the circumstances that the accessible position of the parts affected enable you to watch during life the progress of disease in a manner denied to the physician. As a general rule, surgical pathology has more practical char character than medical pathology. How right he was. Then, in an address to the Royal Society in 1857, this was reporting some of the experimental work which he was undertaking at University College Hospital, and in fact were to earn him the, the, the FRS in 1860. And here he makes a plea with Stan. We stand in the beacon light of correct pathology to enable us to steer a safe course amid various conflicting opinions which assail us. And then in the interval between these observations about pathology and his own observations uh, in the 1850s and the 1860s, there was a huge change, as I've indicated to you, in the development of staining techniques 
and other uh, 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 means of examining histological material. And by this time, this was in 1897, an address to Queen's College in, in uh, Belfast. By this time, we had the microtome. We were able to harden tissues with formalin. We were able to paraffin embed tissue, and we were able to stain tissues. And he clearly had kept up with this. And in his address to the college, he speaks that he was aware of the increasing complexity in examining pathological specimens, section cutting, staining, and microscopic examination, which, which uh, he w did not have any great experience of. In preparing this material, I've been grateful to the Hunterian Museum at Glasgow University, to members of staff of the, of the college here, the Library of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow, Dr. Robin Reed, who was a junior pathologist in my department and kept the old, the old professor right in terms of the diagnoses, and then Alison Gardner of the Lothian, Lothian Health Board, who allowed me access to some of the clinic clinical material which Lister ha had produced during his time in Edinburgh. I hope I have convinced you that Lister, in addition to being a surgeon who made an enormous contribution to the development of surgery, he was also an observant pathologist, and he valued pathology as an adjunct to the work which he was doing, and he himself was clearly enthusiastic about it and sang the praises of pathology. I would venture to suggest that his contributions to pathology while not perhaps in the same class as his surgical work, they still represented important uh, contributions. There was a time at King's College Hospital where the professor of pathology had access to beds. When Lister was appointed to the chair of surgery at King's College, he decided that pathologists would no longer have access to beds. Two explanations. One, he was just new to London, and he had to set up a limited private practice, and he didn't want these bright pathologists competing with him. On the other hand, he might just have realised that these pathologists should be kept in their own place, and had no, they had no business to come and see patients, which was his firm remit. Take a choice? I suspect he thought so much of pathologists that he was jealous that they might keep them out of some aspects of private practice. Thank you very much. Yes, of course. Well, we have good time for uh, questions, ladies and gentlemen, from that uh, extremely thought-provoking, beautifully illustrated talk. Please. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's quite readily possible. You can spin uh, urine specimens and look at the cells which are there. Well, I don't think you'd be able to get much more out of it than what he did. In other words, a description of what the cells look like. And if there was a, a pleomorphism of the cells, you would suspect 
Maybe this comes from a malignant lesion. And of course, cytopathology is now a very important part of a pathologist's duty. We're able to take cells from any organ in the body, take needle samples, and you can look at these and determine what the diagnosis is. He was not at that level of expertise, but I'm sure he could have become an expert in, in, in that area. No, I don't think they would. I think now they're sort of trying to get a tissue diagnosis. But they might needle them and see what the cellular content was. But they don't seem to operate because I've noticed where I live in Essex, um, a woman standing there with just one. She didn't have sort of a double type. Uh -huh. So they don't seem to operate. Well, one have to, would have to be sure of what the diagnosis was, that it wasn't some other kind of tumour rather than a cystic one. Was there a question from the back? Yes, please. Yes, I think the surgeons then were self-taught, and particularly people like Lister, who were interested in the tissue which he was examining. This ex the examination of these say, organs was done in the afternoon, he had a very busy working day, got up at 5.30 in the morning, had a cup of tea and toast, and then worked for three to four hours in his rooms, and then went to the hospital where he delivered the, the lectures at 10 o'clock. The surgery was carried out in the early afternoon, and Syme brought the specimens to him, and he worked on these specimens, dissected them, made these preparations, and did the did the material which we uh, undertook the reproductions which we see here. And I think I've always thought that the good surgeon is as good as his pathologist. And it depends very much on the pathologist and admires what the pathologist does. And I was always more impressed with the surgeon who came over to the pathology department and wanted to see an example of the tissues which he had removed. And they were amenable to advice from the pathologist as to what the lesion was. Uh, wonderful as, uh, as the uh, work is that he did, what actually motivated him to be one of the pioneers of, of the work? Why, why did he detail and look at the specimens in detail so wonderfully? Did he have an inkling of what it might lead to? Well, I can't answer the second question. But I think he was just an interested surgeon, and there are such people. He was interested in the specimens which were removed. He had time on his hands, and he examined them. And he was aware of what was happening in the laboratories, hence his comments to Verkov. He appreciated that tissues were made of cells, and he wanted to see more of them. And that is what he did in his, say, late afternoons when he was looking at these specimens. Lister, I think, was curious about everything which he did. And of course, he was not allowed to undertake the major surgery. He just got the specimens which Syme brought to him. And being an interested person, with time on his hand, and highly motivated, he examined them in detail. And clearly, his powers of observation were considerable. And that's why these are so fascinating. At that time it was. 
No, no longer. No, I think now we work hand in hand and we're able to uh, get tissue diagnosis from needles and various aspirations, and that's where the challenge lies. So it's very easy when you've got a breast specimen with a great big tumour in it, but when you're taking a needle sample from that uh, lesion in the breast or whatever other lesion it is, that's very challenging indeed. May I ask, um, I'm fascinated in the relationship between Lister and his father, Joseph Jackson Lister, mm -hmm. and you touched on this. Could you expand on how important Joseph Jackson Lister's skills with a microscope were in passing them on to his son? Oh, considerably. I'm sure Joseph Lister was brought up in an environment in which the microscope was regularly spoken of and in which his father taught him the principles of achromatic lenses and achromatic objectives. And they, have, they, have a reg they had a huge exchange of correspondence. They were Quakers, of course, and they didn't reply. They, they used the term thee and thine and thou. And they were, the letters were really, showed a clear respect between the son and the father. And I'm sure, in response to the earlier question, I'm sure his father did a lot to stimulate him into examining the tissues and did in fact facilitate and promote his interest in tissues. That's what the microscopists did at that time. They were discovering uh, cells and I'm sure the father was telling son, look at this, come and see this specimen in the microscope. No, he had no family. No. But his wife worked with him and then she died in 1893 of, of pneumonia. And when, he, when she died, he was dependent on Syme's sister to look after him. And because I'm sure he wasn't very well domesticated. His, <laughs> his nephew was, uh, yes. when John Godley was then president of this college, his portrait is just around the corner as you come on the stairs. Uh, and it's a small portrait. And Godley's humility is such that when all the other great and the good on that staircase with their grand portraits have you know, been put back in store, Godley will still be there because it's the only one that fits in that space. <laughs> it was also Godley's, through Godley's auspices, as one of yes, uh, Lord Lister's trustees that the material came here. So we're, we're very fond of, of, of Godley for, for that reason. Please. Sorry? Which school did he go to? Oh, he went to a Quaker school uh, in Kent. Uh, there was, I can't, I do, the name of it is in, uh, in one of the biographies. But he, he was brought up as a Quaker. When he married Agnes Syme in Edinburgh, she, of course, was Church of Scotland. And he changed then from being a Quaker to become an Episcopalian, which he and Agnes, they were both professing as Episcopalians. Was he the eldest son? Were there siblings? There were siblings. Um, you've caught me. I can't tell you what exactly. I think there were two siblings. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the, the, the fun doesn't stop here. Um, we have... Uh, for your perusal and delectation, although not for touching, as you'll see, 
um, behind you um, one of the recently preserved uh, Lister rolls, which were the uh, lecture diagrams that he and his students and Agnes um, prepared to illustrate his lectures, the Victorian version of the PowerPoint we've seen today. So um, uh, please do go, and my colleague Louise will be able to um, talk about um, them at the back there. Um, One more comment about oh, Agnes. She clearly did a lot of the writing, and he clearly must have dictated it to, to her because she would not be familiar with the clinical material. But there is a suggestion that perhaps she also became an interested pathologist and examined some of these tissues and actually described them herself rather than a Lister doing it. There was a very close relationship between the two of them. She was clearly more than just a simple lab assistant. And there's, there are accounts of when the there were accounts of them drawing with a student the uh, roles that we have there, and they have um, the student recalls uh, Agnes coming in at midnight with you know sherry on a tray and clearly being very involved. And mm. if she wasn't drawing them, she was certainly um, very helpful with that. And so, if I may say a couple of thanks, I'd like to thank my archival colleagues for bringing out the uh, Lister roles um, again. I'd like to thank our uh, long-suffering speech-to-text colleagues who, and you've wrestled with some particular uh, uh, terminology today, uh, bravely, I think. Um, I'd like to thank Haley and Jane, our learning and access team, who worked so hard to put this whole uh, series together. Um, I'd like to thank Johnson & Johnson, who provided the support for the lecture series. I should add that uh, very importantly. Um, and our next uh, series on ex-brochure will be um, launched very soon and we'll be running a whole um, series of events around sport and museums at night on the 18th of May, my colleague is telling me. Is our next event. Is our next event. Um, you'll have uh, um, feedback forms on the uh, which were handed out, and there's information, more information about the speech to text. But finally, I would like to thank uh, very heartily and warmly uh, Sir Roddy for coming and give us, giving us such a what turned out to be, as I knew it would, a splendid lecture. Thank you very much. Indeed.